I'm told that Bill Allison was his usual entertaining self. Uh, and, of course, I think Bill can be entertaining reading the phone book. Um, but uh, I'm glad that uh, those of you who were here last week got to benefit from him. Uh, those of us who were on the marriage retreat had a fantastic time. And those of you who weren't with us uh, missed out on that. But, um, but we encourage you to go the next time we do that because that was really fun. Um, but uh, those of us who were on that missed out on Bill, so, you know, it works out. But uh, just, a couple, just a couple things I wanted to say, first of all, before we get started. Number one, let me be the first to say publicly, uh, thank you for this month. Um, Karen and I, uh, you know, I don't know how Jim and Darcy feel, but I know that Karen and I have felt completely loved and treasured by all of you uh, this month. and. Um, as we as we do normally, but especially this month, and and we really appreciate that. So thank you. Uh, the other thing I wanted to tell you: some of you may have seen a large yellow moving truck in my driveway. We are not moving. <laughs> okay, it may look like that, but we're not. So if you've heard any rumors that direction, there's a Pinsky truck in Horn's driveway. I wonder where they're going. We're not going anywhere. Uh, we were. Uh, some members of my family donated some furniture to Karen and I, and that truck was necessary to get it to us. So just to soothe any worries that anybody has, we're not going anywhere. Uh, I told the elders yesterday, uh, I'm staying, and my intention is to stay until you have to bury me in the backyard. So um, we're, we're not, you know, just to, if there's anybody unclear on that, um, the other thing that I want to draw your attention to, on the back of your bulletin every week, we publish where we are financially. And to this point in the year, we're running about $3,100 uh, in the red actual uh, income versus actual expenses. And just want to make you aware of that. Um, you know, I actually feel like we're, we're doing very well, um, you know, especially in a tough economic situation. Uh, which seems to be improving, but at the same time, um, you know, ministry costs money, and um, and so we all need to be willing to sacrifice to see the kingdom of God expand. And so, just want to give you a word of encouragement on that. Just draw your attention to that. Uh, whatever you can do, as in terms of uh, how the Lord would lead, uh, certainly we would appreciate and benefit from as a as a church family. So, just a word of encouragement on that. Uh, we have been talking about marriage the last few weeks, uh, and the Bible has a lot to say about that. And uh, I promised you two weeks ago when I was here last that I would talk to you this week about how to have a God-honoring fight. And I want to begin that discussion by talking to you, first of all, about the sport of mixed martial arts uh, as immortalized in the Ultimate Fight Championship that they hold. Uh, the ultimate, first Ultimate Fight Championship was held uh, in 1993. It was, run, it was won by uh, Hoyce Gracie, uh, who is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner. Uh, and it was a brutal, nasty uh, affair. Uh, about the only thing that you can't do is fish hooking and eye gouging. Everything else is legal. And... Basically, it is, it is He-Man boxing. Uh, it is a fight until your opponent is unconscious or gives up. And it is a bloody, nasty sport. You know, rolling around on the ground, 
kicking and punching and uh, elbowing and uh, kneeing and headbutting and everything else that you can imagine. Uh, and it has become very popular. They have put in some more rules to make it a little, a little bit less, uh, you know, brutal or disgusting. Uh, but as they have put in more rules, the sport has become more popular to where now uh, mixed martial arts regularly attracts more viewers on pay-per-view than boxing or professional wrestling, which are the, the two top contenders otherwise. And you may be wondering why I'm talking about this and what this has to do with marriage. And it's because in every marriage, there is going to be conflict in every one. And I'm not suggesting that in every marriage there is rolling around on the ground, hair pulling, eye gouging, punching, kicking, kneeing, and headbutting. <laughs> okay. But I will say this that this is the reality. The difference between the word marital and the word martial, between a wedding and a war, is where you put the I. And where you put the I, when you're in conflict, a lot of us have an I problem, and that I have to win whenever we're in conflict. Where you put the eye is going to make the difference between whether you have a God-honoring fight or not. And while you may not roll around on the ground slugging one another, at least I hope you don't. If you do, come see me. We have counseling available. <laughs> okay. Um, we also have a good relationship with the police department. Uh, <laughs> so don't do that. Uh, but where you put the eye is going to determine whether you have a wedding or a war. And we all need to be sure that we put the eye in the right spot. Amen? And that we have an appropriate perspective on ourselves and an appropriate perspective on whether it's important to win the fight or win the marriage. Okay? So I want to give you some rules of engagement. You know, whenever you're in combat, you need rules of engagement. What's legal? when we go to fighting. So I'm going to give you some rules of engagement out of James chapter 1. So if you have your Bible, go to James chapter 1, and you can learn with me. And by the way, I am not very good at this. I'll just tell you that straight up, okay? I am not very good at this. But here we go. We'll all learn together. If I have to suffer, you have to suffer. That's how we're going to play this. James chapter 1, verse 19. My brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Now, as I said before, conflict is inevitable in any close human relationship. And the reason that it's inevitable, if you remember back a few weeks ago, is the fall. Remember Genesis 3, uh, Eve eats some of the fruit after the serpent deceives her. She gives some to her husband who's with her. He eats some, and the entire human race since then is plunged into sin. And everything that marriage was supposed to be in the garden, the way that God designed marriage to reflect his image, is ever after that marred 
and damaged. And as Christians, God has called us into a relationship with him through faith in his son by the power of his spirit. And he enables us to redeem our marriage relationships as we as people are redeemed in Christ. But it's challenging because you're still two people who are in full possession of a fallen nature even as you're indwelt by the Spirit if you're both believers in Christ. But because we have the Spirit, we are enabled by the Spirit's power to walk in newness of life. And this is part of that. That when we're in conflict together, even though it's inevitable, if you put two people in a close relationship, you're going to have fights eventually. It's going to happen. We're not all going to always agree with one another. We're not going to agree whether you're talking about a business partnership, whether you're talking about a corporation, whether you're talking about the Rotary Club, whether you're talking about a marriage, whether you're talking about a church. Close relationships bring conflict. They just are going to because we're not all perfect before God as we will be one day yet. Uh, But you also need to remember that conflict is an opportunity. It's an opportunity to demonstrate love and grace and care for one another, to understand each other better. I got to tell you that Guys, that one of the things that, that conflict has done for me in my marriage is that it has helped me to understand my mate better because now I understand through the pain that I have sometimes caused to Karen how she thinks and how she uh, approaches life and how when I say things in a certain way, that's received differently than I intend. And I come to a better understanding of what kind of person God has blessed me with. And, and I also think, by the way, that marriage is part of God's plan to sanctify us and redeem us. Today is Reformation Sunday. Now, you may think it's Halloween, and it is that. But it's also Reformation Day. It's the day when in 1517, nearly 500 years ago, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg University church door and touched off the Reformation. And he was a good, he was a good uh, hard-working Catholic monk up to then. Uh, but he saw that the church was in trouble and that the church was doing many things which were unbiblical. And one of the things that was unbiblical is he said, look, the Bible says I can get married. So he got himself a wife and he, uh, named Catherine. And he said, marriage taught me what no monastery could. And he was right. The fact is, is that God has intended our marriages to rub off the rough edges and corners on us and to make us holy. Because what happens is when you're in love with this person and you see the destruction that your sinfulness causes, in their life and in the pain that you bring to them, you are motivated to change. And you become, in a, in a different way than you otherwise would, a holy, God-honoring person as you change in response to what you, the, the, the reality of seeing your sin in their hurt. And it's a good thing. It's an opportunity to grow and to change and to advance from a spiritual perspective. 
I think that's part of the deal. I think that's why God gives us our marriages and our mates. We think it's all about love and passion and maybe children, but it's also about holiness. And when we're in conflict, it's an opportunity to grow in holiness before God. Um, so, whether we're going to actually experience that kind of personal growth and change through conflict is, is dependent on how well you follow the rules of engagement here. And number one rule that we have here, look at James 1.19. Be quick to listen. In other words, when we're in conflict with someone, we need to make sure, first of all, that we are seeking to actually understand the other person more than we are seeking to be understood ourselves. Proverbs uh, says it this way in uh, chapter 18, verse 13. It says this, He who answers before listening, that is his folly and his shame. Now, I have to tell you that I am a professional level non-listener. Okay? I mean, if they had a league, I'd be at the top of whatever that is. All right? I don't listen very well. And especially when it comes to my wife, and this is how it often goes with us. We get into conflict, Karen has hurt feelings, and she says to me, now men, do not imitate this example, all right? This is not the way you're supposed to do this, but this is the way it goes. Karen will say, when you said X, or when you did Y, I felt Z, and implication being Jerk, you need to apologize, okay? Now, she, does, she doesn't talk to me that way, but that's what I'm understanding. And this is my response often. Well, see, but I intended A, and you should, ha you should have felt B, and so therefore, C, I'm exonerated. <laughs> okay? And she goes, but I'm still hurt. Well, that's your problem, <laughs> okay? Now, that is not an example of good listening, all right? And I don't do it well often. Uh, often that is because of pride and a desire to see myself as better than I am often. And often it's because I think I already know what the problem is. And often it's because I don't want to, if someone is hurt, accept responsibility for the damage I've caused. Okay. Now, I know that nobody else in the room has any of those problems, so this is all about me. But I will say this. The Scripture says that everyone, everyone, read it. It's what, underline that. Everyone should be quick to listen. I know that for a lot of us, you know, we fit the profile of the definition of insanity. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting different results each time. I have been married 14 years, and I have been convinced the entire time that if I could just show Karen through the brilliance of my logic 
that if you hold that if you hold my actions in a certain light, that they're perfectly innocent, <laughs> right? And I keep doing this, thinking that someday she's going to go, well, Shazam, I didn't realize that I was in the presence of moral perfection. <laughs> Silly me, okay? Now, she's not ever done that, and I can't figure out why. Of course, I know why, because she married a sinner, and so did I, by the way. Um, but if we want to uh, obey the Scriptures, we need to be quick to listen. And guys, let me tell you how that works. If your wife comes to you and she says, Honey, when you did X, that hurt me. And it really bugged me when you did this or said this. Then the appropriate response is to say, So help me understand my, how that hurt you. Well, it made me feel this way. Oh, I'm sorry. Let me tell you the three best words in the English language. Ready? They're not, I love you. Although that's close. That comes in really, that right, right by a nose. It's beat out by these three. Are you ready for the magic words? I was wrong. Those are really good. They beat out I love you with a stick because they underline what you say when you say I love you. Because what you're saying when you say I was wrong is I admit that what I did hurt you. It, I am a sinner and I am going to change because I was wrong to do what I did or say what I said, or to say it the way that I said it, or to do it the way that I did it. And a lot of times, it's not a sin of overt commission. It's a sin of just basic selfishness and thoughtlessness. But it's still sin. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm just talking about this, you know, because I'm a man, and this is how I tend to think. But ladies, if your husband comes to you, and says, when you did or you didn't do X, Y, Z, the same thing applies to you. You need to be quick to listen and understand what they're saying. And to ask some reflective questions. So that we don't, what, what often happens if you don't listen is this. You get an initial presentation of an offense, confrontation followed by defensiveness, which leads to an escalated round of confrontation, which leads to an escalated round of defensiveness. And pretty soon you get that thing wrapped around like bailing wire on a lawnmower where it just doesn't work anymore. And it becomes, instead of this pleasant, enjoyable marriage, it becomes a steel cage match for who's going to win this thing. And you don't want that. And it's no fun. So, next time you're in a conflict, be quick to listen. Quick to listen. Number two, and second rule of engagement here. 
slow to speak. Now, this applies to both the offended party and the offender. If you're the offended party, you need to wait, first of all, and consider whether this is a big enough deal to make an issue of. Uh, If you wait just a little bit, it gives you time to consider whether this is a really big thing or if this is just part of living with another human and having to learn how to put up with some quirks and idiosyncrasies and just the fact that I'm married to a man and I'm, or I'm married to a woman and they are not the same as me. And they're not supposed to be. And not everything in the world has to revolve around the way I think it should go. But if you're talking about, you know, the Scripture says sometimes we need to simply overlook things. In fact, uh, Proverbs 19.11, this is a good verse to memorize. A man's wisdom gives him patience. It is to his glory to overlook an offense. You know, we can't bury the needle on everything. Can't just, you know, think things through for eight seconds before you go off half-cocked. You have to think this through and, and consider, is this a serious enough issue to actually address? Or am I having a problem here because I got up on the wrong side of the bed today? Or my hormones are going crazy? Or I didn't get enough sleep last night? Or some other factor is playing into this, and there's really nothing they have done wrong. It's really just me. Jesus says it this way. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the log in your own? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's. Uh, Sometimes you just need to back up a step and realize that not only... May your sin be a contributing factor to the situation, but yours may actually exceed theirs. We need to be careful not to rush in to fix every little thing that somebody does that bugs us. Sometimes we need to be careful. Be slow to speak if you're the offended party. Sometimes people are hypersensitive. And if you're one of them, you need to own that, recognize it, and be slow to speak. On the other side of this, if you're the offender, this this verse applies to you too. And this verse can be understood as, as giving kind of an underlining in a different way the initial command of being quick to listen. Because one of the biggest pitfalls in conflict is too much talking and not enough listening. And if you wait until the other person has had a chance to get all of their stuff out on the table, then very often you can come to a resolution better than if you interrupt them in the process. I'm a terrible interrupter. I do that a lot. Awful shouldn't do that. 
But very often as someone is speaking, especially if we're in conflict, what I'm thinking is all the, all the refutation that I'm about to do. And sometimes it just is inside me and I go, well, I have to say this because, I mean, this, this is too important to let that pass. Don't do that. Be slow to speak. Be slow to speak. And by the way, Proverbs has a lot to say about this too. If you want a, if you want a good study for your devotional life, do a study on the tongue from the book of Proverbs because Proverbs has a ton of stuff to say on this. How about this one? This is one to memorize, and I actually have memorized this. Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is a man who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now, I have paid some tuition on that verse. I have done that. I have done that here. Where sometimes you say things, your mouth sometimes operates faster than your brain. And you just blurt stuff out. And you cause damage to people. Proverbs 10.19, when words are many, sin is not absent, but the one who holds his tongue is wise. Now, I talk for a living, okay? (laughs) If there's a verse I ought to have, like, engraved above my door, this would be a good one. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. Or how about this one? Proverbs 17, 28, even a fool is thought wise if he keeps silent and discerning if he holds his tongue. Be slow to speak. Or Mark Twain kind of had his paraphrase of this, better to keep silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes... It's the way of wisdom is to hold your tongue. Sometimes, believe it or not, if you just are quiet, the other person will see that they're actually in the wrong in what they're doing or how they're treating you or how they're speaking. And you leave room for the Holy Spirit in their life to do the convicting where you don't have to respond and vindicate yourself and make sure that everybody knows how righteous and holy you are and how you're not in sin here. Be slow to speak. The last one here, last rule of engagement, slow to become angry. Now, I think that formulation, those particular words is really interesting. And the reason it's interesting is that in the Old Testament, slow to anger is one of the the consistent descriptions of God himself. I want you to see this. If you have your Bible, go over to Exodus uh, chapter 32, I believe it is. Okay. If I'm wrong, we'll find it. All right. Exodus 
maybe 34. It's 34, I'm sorry. I was wrong. See how easy that was? I was wrong. Exodus chapter 34. Now, this is after the incident with the golden calf where the Israelites have have broken the first commandment that God gave them and the second and a few others in the process of building the golden calf. And Moses broke the tablets because God's covenant had been broken by his people. And God has given him new tablets. And he says to God, now show me your glory. Verse 5, then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Anytime you see in your Bible that capital L and then small capitals, O-R-D, that is an underlying Hebrew word, Yahweh. And so you could read it like this. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood, stood there with him and proclaimed his name, Yahweh. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the gracious and compassionate God, underline this, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And I think James remembers this passage. And I think that he is reminding us all of the fact that one of the primary characteristics of God is that he does not immediately judge us for our wickedness, evil, sin, and rebellion against him. But instead, he has a long fuse. He is slow to anger. Doesn't mean he doesn't judge or that he won't judge or that somehow he forgets about our sin. But it does mean that that God is slow to anger, and he forgives, even rebellion against him. And the Bible never says that we as people are to be anything less than gracious and loving and caring for other people. The Bible does not commend you if you have a short fuse. Blessed are the hot-tempered, for they shall destroy their marriages. Now, it never says that. It's not in there. I've looked. It says, be slow to anger. And the Bible knows nothing either of the very modern idea that, well, if you feel something, you should just vent it. In fact, this is what Proverbs 29.11 says. A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. That's not only good advice, that's part of the fruit of the Spirit. Remember the last one? Self-control. It's not always a sin to be angry, but we should be slow in getting there. Now, if you've got got your Bible still, uh, go back to James 1, uh, verse 20. James gives the reason why we should do these things. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. A lot of times when you're in conflict, and at least this is how I feel when I'm in conflict, that 
the entire moral order of the universe of right and wrong and good and evil hangs in the balance on the outcome of this argument. And I have got to be seen to not only be right, but be seen to be right by all involved. Right? Now, no one else is like that, I know. But I've got to win this thing. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. In other words, if you win this, you're not going to get necessarily any closer to holiness and righteousness before God. If you are the offending party, defending yourself is not going to make you any more holy and righteous. And going at one another hammer and tongs is not going to improve your relationship. I don't know about you, but I have never had somebody, you know, go toe-to-toe with me and be screaming at me or be making cutting remarks or be criticizing me up one side and down the other in the most barbed fashion possible and ever had this thought. Well, Shazam, in the light of your holy wrath, I repent. That has never occurred. And I'll bet you that you have never had that thought either. You have never thought, oh, gosh. Well, if I had known about your righteous and holy anger, I would have repented and turned from my wickedness. No, what you think is, I'm glad I hurt you because look at what a jerk you're being. You deserve it. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Change does not come about for either of you if you don't follow the rules of engagement. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry. Now, remember I said, I said at the beginning that the difference between a wedding and a war is where you put the eye, whether you get marital or Marshall. And I want to make sure that we're putting the eye in the right place because Proverbs 18:21 says the tongue has the power of life and death. And if you are married or if someday you hope to be married or if you're going to actually not live on a desert island by yourself and spend any time interacting with other human beings, you need to remember that the tongue has the power of life and death. You can either encourage people or destroy them with your words. So let's make sure we're putting the I in the right place. Here's some questions for you to think, think over. When I and my spouse are in conflict, am I really listening or am I just waiting for my turn to speak so that I can refute and defend against everything he or she has just said. Am I really listening? Question number two, do I listen well? Taking the opportunity afforded by a conflict to understand my spouse better and asking questions to make sure I understand.
Number three, am I quick to speak and even to interrupt so that I can make my point? When I am confronted, do I accept my responsibility for my actions and apologize? You ready for this? Without excuse or qualification. That's really important. A lot of times people want to put that contrasting conjunction in there. I was wrong when I did this, however. And everything after that invalidates everything before it. What I did here was wrong, but... No, without excuse or qualification. Last one. Am I easily offended and slow to forgive? Or am I quick to overlook minor offenses and forgive easily, knowing how much God has forgiven me? Because that's really the issue. If you... If you measure yourselves among yourselves and uh, by yourselves, as Paul says, you are not wise. But if you measure yourself against God, you'll do okay. As long as God is the standard for righteousness and holiness, and by the way, forgiveness, then you can have a great marriage. But as long as we're looking at one another and saying, well, I'm the standard for right and wrong, or No, I'm the standard for right and wrong. No, no. God is the standard. And when you look at him and you go, you know what? God has forgiven me more than I can count. More than I really even can get my arms around. The level of my rebellion and sin against him. And yet because of that, even if I was the only one who was a sinner, he sent Jesus Christ to a crucified, bloody, painful, tortured death for me. And for, not only forgives me, but adopts me into his family, giving me the same status as Jesus before the throne of God. And puts his Holy Spirit in me to change my life so that I can be not only forgiven, but actually holy. God has forgiven and loved me that much. And then I can look at that and see someone else's sin against me in appropriate perspective. Uh, I think last year sometime I taught one of Jesus' parables and calculated uh, the amounts that Jesus was talking about, about a servant who owed the king 10,000 talents, $8 billion in those prices. I think prices have gone up since. $8 $8 billion, and his fellow servant owed him 50 bucks. That is the scale. God has forgiven us billions. We ha- therefore ought to be willing to forgive and give grace to others because their offense against us by comparison is 50 bucks. Quick to listen slow to speak, slow to become angry. Now, this is hard stuff, so we're going to pray, and we're going to ask God 
by his Holy Spirit to empower us and change us so we can obey it. So let's pray.